From WPFW News in Washington, this is Monday Morning QB, a news program with a point of view. Today is Monday, May 22nd, 2023. I'm Sue Goodwin. And I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Today on the show, how J. Edgar Hoover used the FBI to promote white evangelicalism. Plus, how the experience of loneliness can cause serious health problems. And a report on the expansion of stand-your-ground laws and what's at stake. Plus, we're in Pledge Drive this morning. Become a supporter of this great radio station by calling 202-588-9739 and making a donation. You can also visit us online at WPFW.org. Click on the big red Donate Now button. All that and more. Stay with us. And I'm Asia Beckham. The Southern Poverty Law Center hosted a virtual discussion with the author of the book titled The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, how the FBI aided and abetted the rise of white Christian nationalism. The conversation was moderated by Tiffany English Ralph, who serves as the director of the Alabama State Office and Civil Rights Memorial Center. As Tiffany puts it, the book details the role white Christian nationalism played in the Hoover administration and how those strategies reinforce systemic racism, which continues to define our perception of race and religion. Here's more from their discussion. Dr. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's really a a blessing and a privilege to be with you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what led you doing the research and then leading to you writing the book? I had originally set out to write a book about religious radio. Two things happened that summer, in the summer of uh, 2014. I had a conversation with a friend of mine by the name of William Max, just finished writing a book on the FBI surveillance of African-American writers, James Baldwin, Lorraine Hansberry. And so he said, you know, you might want to start checking and see if the FBI was following radio preachers. And then um, in August of that, uh, that summer, in 2014, Michael Brown was killed. And as the community and really the nation was waiting to hear if uh, the officer would be charged with that, with with Michael Brown's death, um, several ministers in the St. Louis area shared with me that the FBI had contacted them and uh, asked for their assistance. Say, what are you going to do to help us to make sure this community doesn't explode? Because we're pretty sure that. This, the grand jury is not going to indict the officer. How long has the FBI been reaching out to clergy, not for surveillance per se, but for assistance? You actually had to sue the FBI in order to write this book. Tell us what you can about the lawsuit, what exactly it is you were seeking. And you mentioned the FOIA request previously, what led to that strategic approach to sue the FBI in order to tell this story. As I made Freedom of Information Act requests, I started getting some hits and responses. Ministers who the FBI had very cordial relationships with, especially during the leadership of J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI. So that would have been from 1924 to 1972. 
as I was making requests over several years, as those many of you know, it takes sometimes several years to get information back. So in the midst of that, in 2018, the evangelist Billy Graham passed away. And I um, made a request for his FBI file. I knew that the Freedom of Information Act stated that once someone passed away, they no longer had privacy rights to textual materials. So I've made a Freedom of Information Act request for Billy Graham. I never heard back for two months, which the statute states that in such requests, our determination needs to be made within 20 working days. I never heard anything. Finally, in April, two months later, I got a letter that simply said, we don't know if we have anything on Billy Graham, but we'll let you know when we know. <laughs> and that was it. So being a novice at this, I thought, well, that's that, right? You know, as my, as my father would say, you know, it's the federal government, right? What are, you, what are you going to do? It's the federal government. Thankfully, I met um, an attorney, just happened, was introduced to an attorney. Um, and teaches at Villanova uh, School of Law, Tuwan Samahan. And we were talking about our, our research, and I told him, and like a good lawyer, you know, he said, well, that's against the law. You should sue. And, and I thought, sue the federal government? You know, he said, yeah, you know, this is, this is, this was what happens in FOIA um, um, cases a lot. And um, you should file a lawsuit, and I'll help you do that. And so we worked together. And we filed a lawsuit um, concerning um, the FBI file of Billy Graham. The court ordered the FBI to um, find anything they had on Billy Graham and to release it to me on a rolling basis. And so for several months, I received 500 pages of documents um, roughly every month or every other month. But I did receive a host of newspaper clippings. The FBI was very much so concerned about Billy Graham's travels, his whereabouts. They investigated almost every single death threat he received. And so that got me thinking, well, if there's something there, then I'm going to now file a Freedom of Information Act request on the world around Billy Graham. So that's interesting that you started this looking at Billy Graham, who's very, of course, notable. How does J. Edgar Hooper get into the picture? J. Edgar Hoover was really America's kind of spiritual general. I mean, what we know about J. Edgar Hoover, we know a great deal about his surveillance now. We know a great deal about some of the, the anti-democratic and illegal um, tactics he used against a great deal of, of people and activists in this country. But what we've forgotten is that most of Americans looked to Billy Graham as this um, spiritual figurehead for the country who was protecting America against the evils of communism. And that's how America uh, viewed J. Edgar Hoover. He wrote a great deal for a lot of Christian newspapers and outlets. And then in the 1950s, he wrote a book um, called uh, Masters of Deceit. And it was a book about how America should fight communism and how America could survive godless communism. Christianity today and the host of white evangelicals it, rec uh, it represented loved the book. And they reached out to him in the late 1950s asking if they could partner with him and if he would become a contributor to Christianity today. And from there, they had a partnership where 
the FBI would connect with Christianity Today. They would discuss what J. Edgar Hoover would write. They would they would talk about it. They would partner on it. J. Edgar Hoover would then write an essay for Christianity Today. And then it would be printed. And then the FBI would take those essays and disseminate them across the country to all the FBI field offices across the country and um, FBI legats or legal attaches offices across the globe. And then also people began writing to the FBI for advice on issues of religion and politics. And the FBI would disseminate these essays. And so these essays not only said Christianity Today on them, but it also said with the stamp of the United States Department of Justice. So if the FBI begins disseminating with the uh, literally the stamp of approval from the Department of Justice, J. Edgar Hoover's religious advice and sermons and homilies as if it's official policy. And all of these essays talk about the dangers of communism, the dangers of protest, and how ministers who focus on individual salvation, that they're the real patriots and they're the ones who are going to save America. And so through this partnership, they, the Christianity Today and white evangelicals begin working together and partnering to brand a certain kind of Christian faith as the only authentic faith in this country, and also the faith that was going to keep America safe from a national security standpoint. And then ministers began to literally preach these essays from their pulpit. Mm -hmm. So you have the director of the FBI becomes a ghostwriter of thousands of sermons within the evangelical uh, community. Now, um, of course, in preparation for, for this, and in addition to read your book, I also listened to a couple of podcasts. And uh, the podcast that you did with Melissa uh, Harris-Perry, uh, who is one of my favorites, by the way, she opened it up, a letter from Mrs. Carter, who was seeking advice from J. Edgar Hoover on spiritual direction. Can you talk, you know, just... Because I actually find that fascinating was this this tone from just everyday ordinary people. Absolutely. Um, Americans really turned to the FBI to be the spiritual adjudicator of what was true faith and allegiance. As Joyce Carter from Georgia writes a letter, and it's a letter that's repeated a number of times in various different facets. But it's a letter requesting help. And she says to the FBI director, you know, we just don't know who to trust anymore. She said, we can't trust the Democrats. We can't trust Republicans. I don't know if I should listen to Billy Graham. I don't know if, if Barry Goldwater is the way. But we all, most Americans believe that if the FBI says it, it's true. So please tell me what Bible I should read. Tell me who I should listen to. And it's a fascinating letter because it gives us insight into how countless everyday Americans viewed the FBI. For a very long time, Americans looked to the FBI for spiritual guidance and political guidance. And because of that, the FBI was very powerful in getting white evangelicals to jump on board, to um, embrace certain political standpoints, especially in its opposition to the civil rights movement. You talked earlier about how the FBI was tasked with sharing and passing out 
the sermons that were reposted. What did that do to the culture of the FBI? Was the culture of the internal FBI very much operating in that same premise? Absolutely. When Hoover took over the FBI in 1924, he began a process of firing everyone who was there and the, and the special agents, except for white males who he found to be morally qualified. And he began a process of recruiting agents um, that were primarily Protestant and Catholic. And a great deal of where he recruited his agents from was uh, a white Southern uh, fraternity by the name of K.A., Kappa Alpha, which has as its sort of spiritual founder as Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general. So a great deal of his agents came from that. And then what he did was he instituted religious practices within the FBI that were pretty much required for FBI special agents. Um, so they would attend spiritual retreats. They would attend FBI worship services where the FBI was lifted up as God's instrument to protect America. And FBI agents were cultivated through a list of spiritual practices to see themselves as both ministers and soldiers for the American nation. And Hoover even had FBI agents signed what he called a law enforcement pledge, which literally stated, as a minister, I will seek to provide aid and comfort to those who need it. And as a soldier, I will wage vigorous warfare against the enemies of my nation. And so when FBI agents are out doing the work they're doing, whether it's legal or illegal, they see themselves and Hoover helps to cultivate this in them as working on behalf of God to protect America and to keep America safe. And that means to protect the status quo. Hoover didn't see African-Americans as being smart enough and worthy to have and experience full citizenship. And so when his agents go out and they're doing illegal activities, they see themselves as protecting the status quo, which was established by God, and to protect America from these people who aren't ready to lead, who aren't ready to be citizens. That piece you just heard is just one of literally hundreds of pieces we do every year on Monday Morning QB to fulfill our mission to keep you up to date on the latest news and developments in our world with perspectives, insights, points of view that turn our news programming into something that is not just a rehash of what is being carried more broadly. So help us make sure we are always there to do just that. You can do that by calling 202-588-9739. You can pledge online at wpfwfm.org. And if you donate at the $100 level, we have a very important gift. It is a copy of the Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism by Lerone Martin, who we just heard from. Once again, if you can donate now at the $100 level, we will send you a copy of the Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism 
by Lerone Martin. To make that donation or donate at any level, call 202-588-9739 or go to our website at wpfwfm.org or you can use Cash App at dollar sign WPFW. And thank you for your support. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Earlier this month, Republican Representative Matt Gates of Florida and Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma introduced the National Stand Your Ground Act of 2023 in the House and Senate, respectively. These bills would codify Florida's Stand Your Ground law at the federal level, even though such laws already exist in dozens of states, and even though they may be leading to increased violence and have been shown to be deepening pre-existing racial disparities in our criminal justice system. To find out more about why these laws have been proliferating and what's at stake, we turned to Cami Chavis, the Haynes Professor of Law at William and Mary School of Law and also the Director of the Center for Criminal Justice Policy and Reform at the law school. Last year, she wrote a piece titled The Dangerous Expansion of Stand Your Ground Laws and Its Racial Implications. And as she explained to us, to fully understand the kind of shift that is taking place today, it is important to understand the influence of British common law on how many states have shaped their own self-defense laws for hundreds of years. Generally, um, this was a defense that was available and you could use deadly force if you reasonably believed that you were threatened, being threatened with serious bodily injury uh, or death. And um, any force that you use had to be necessary to avoid the threat, and it had to be proportionate. So, uh, for example, if someone were just using their fists, you know, we would say, well, um, you kind of responding with a, a firearm of some sort uh, might um, unduly escalate that, and you might not be able to use it. So it had to be necessary. It had to be proportionate but there was also a duty to retreat. And that means that if I'm being threatened with the, this type of, of force that would allow me to use deadly force, but there was a safe way for me to escape, you know, I could run into my home or I could uh, call on others for help or um, I could simply leave the, the scene um, of, of the occurrence here, then I was bound to do that. I had to do that. And if I didn't uh, retreat and there was safe retreat, then I would not be able to use self-defense. And so what this tells us about the law of self-defense is that it really was a defense of last resort, right? We we want to uh, maintain uh, and preserve the sanctity of human life. Um, Of course, you can preserve your own life, but if there was a way for you to retreat and avoid the use of deadly force, then um, you could, uh, and if you could do so, then the law wanted you to do that. 
And then, in 2005, a turning point. That's the year Florida became the first state to fully enact what is now known as a stand-your-ground law. The law establishes that a person, anywhere they are lawfully present, has no duty to retreat and has the right to stand his or her ground and meet force with force, including deadly force, if he or she reasonably believes it is necessary to do so to prevent death or great bodily harm. Over the past 18 years, such laws have been adopted by more than two dozen states and according to the National Conference of State Legislatures, at least ten of those states have laws that literally say you can, quote, stand your ground, close quote. So what should lawmakers know if they are asked to make this standard federal law? First, as Cami Chavis reminds us, studies show that stand-your-ground laws do not deter crimes, but have been shown to increase firearm homicide rates. If you were a policymaker, you'd want to know. Stand your ground is supposed to protect lives, but if we're seeing an increase in homicides after those laws have been enacted, um, that could certainly indicate that they're having an effect. For example, Stand your ground laws are associated with an 11% increase in monthly firearm homicide rates, according to JAMA Network Open, a medical journal published by the American Medical Association. Cami Chavis says that's a logical outcome if the law allows individuals perceiving a threat to forego de-escalation and use deadly force as a first step. Yes, I think that that they do encourage people to take the law into their own hands, uh, use that force, particularly if you have um, a firearm uh, available and there's a situation and, and it's easy for you to, to do that rather than call the police or exit or maybe you feel that you don't have time. But it's not just an increase in vigilantism in stand-your-ground states that raises alarm. Stand Your Ground law relies on the perception of fear. And in a country where black people, particularly men, are more likely to be viewed as threats and white people are more likely to be given the benefit of the doubt, Stand Your Ground law creates greater opportunities for racial bias to enter the criminal justice system. There are several studies that indicate that the race of the victim uh, really uh, matters here in terms of who gets to avail themselves of the the right of self-defense. So if you are, for example, a white defendant who is trying to use this defense and you've shot a black person, uh, you are more likely to be able to use that defense than a black defendant who um, had shot Uh, or killed uh, a white person. So the disparities, um, again, are concerning because if we're going to say, well, we have this law, um, everyone is equal (laughs) under the law, we should not be seeing the racial disparities in terms of how it's used. And that just tells us a little bit about how juries are valuing uh, victims based on race and also 
I could tell us a little bit about who is the type of person that um, instills fear uh, in a person uh, to make them want to use deadly force. So I'm, I'm very concerned. And part of the concern is about the context in which stand your ground laws are landing that contribute to increased violence and deeper racial disparities. My main concern, though, I think when we're talking about how to repeal this is, is that it, it's not in a vacuum. These stand your ground statutes are not happening in a vacuum. If we're in a jurisdiction where you can, you know, quote, stand your ground, um, but there's not this ready access to, to firearms and everyone has one and everyone can carry one without a permit or openly, then um, we are in a bit of a different situation. So I think that uh, for me, it is seeing the intersection uh, you know, again, we have it simultaneously the expansion of these stand your ground statutes, you know, uh, relaxing the um, situations in which you can use deadly force. And then we have a lot more ability to use deadly force because um, of our of our changing uh, firearms uh, laws. Um, so I think it's the convergence of those two phenomenon that that really put us in a very difficult situation. And then a third uh, piece of that would be, you know, kind of where we are um, in our society when it, when it comes to um, racial uh, bias uh, and, um, and quite frankly, some of the um, uh, well, white supremacist behavior, growing behavior that we have seen over the past few years. Um, this is not, um, you know, we're not making this up that uh, there's uh, some increased uh, activity and uh, of some of these uh, groups. Cami Chavis does support the repeal of Stand Your Ground laws, but short of that happening, she is also an advocate for reforms that can blunt the dangerous and racially disparate impact of these laws. Reforms such as limiting the locations where Stand Your Ground can be used as a self-defense, and the threshold for reasonable threat. I, I just think that if we're concerned about preserving the dignity, the sanctity of human life, uh, we need to be careful about when we allow self-defense. I do want to take this opportunity to say that there are certainly very real circumstances when people are threatening others and the use of force is justified. Uh, but I am saying that it cannot be without limitation. And, you know, again, if we're really concerned about preserving the sanctity of human life, that's not okay to use deadly force when you're not being threatened with deadly force. Just because someone is scary or frightening to you, um, that is not the same thing as them threatening you. And, um, and we really have to draw draw those lines. So reform. If we're going to have these uh, stand your ground statutes, as and again, it seems that, that we are, we've only seen an expansion. I really am not aware of any state that's repealed or rolled back um, their statutes, even in light of some of the um, horror stories that, that we've heard. So if we're going to have them, we really do have to study the effect and the impact. That was Cami Chavis the Haynes Professor of Law at William & Mary School of Law and also the director of the Center 
for Criminal Justice Policy and Reform at the Law School. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Once again, we want to remind you that we are in our spring pledge drive and we are asking for your support because that is literally what allows us on the WPFW news team to bring you the news every weekday and bring you this show, Monday Morning QB, every week. So help us make sure we are always there to do just that. You can do that by calling 202-588-9739. You can pledge online at WPFWFM.org. And if you donate at the $100 level, we have a very important gift. It is a copy of the Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism by Lerone Martin, who we just heard from. Once again, if you can donate now at the $100 level, we will send you a copy of the Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism by Lerone Martin. To make that donation or donate at any level, call 202-588-9739 or go to our website at wpfwfm.org, or you can use Cash App at dollar sign WPFW. And thank you for your support. Earlier this month, as pandemic-related emergency measures began to unwind, the U.S. Surgeon General warned of another epidemic, that of loneliness. In stark terms, Dr. Vivek Murthy warned that loneliness causes serious health problems, equivalent to smoking almost a pack of cigarettes a day. And the problem is widespread, with about half of American adults experiencing loneliness in recent years. Dr. Murthy warned that if we fail to tackle this social scourge, quote, instead of coming together to take on the great challenges before us, we will further retreat to our corners, angry, sick, and alone, end quote. To better understand the emotional and physical health implications of loneliness and how to solve it, Monday Morning QB was joined by Rick Weisbord, faculty director at Making Caring Common, a project of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Weisbord, a psychologist, also serves as a senior lecturer at Harvard. Weisbord and others at Making Caring Common published a report in 2021 detailing how the coronavirus pandemic worsened loneliness and who was particularly affected. First, Weisbord describes how we measure and define the experience of loneliness. This is this is a great question, and I do think loneliness is a qualitatively very different experience that, you know, when some people talk about being lonely, they are talking about not having as many friends as other people do, um, or as many likes on social media as other people do. 
And that's really different from the experience of a parent who is home with his or her small child all day and just wants some affirmation from another adult. And different from the experience of existential loneliness, you're just feeling alone in space and time. So these are very different experiences. And, you know, we do some interviewing of people where we ask them what they mean by loneliness, and you can get at some of the texture at this in a more fine-grained way. But usually this is just asked, you know, some version of over the last month, have you felt lonely almost never or one or two days, several days with a scale like that? UCLA does have a more sophisticated loneliness measure with several different dimensions to it. But most researchers don't use that. I mean, most most people are just asking a, a general question about loneliness. So this latest report from Surgeon General Vivek Murthy um, lists some of the adverse effects of loneliness, depression, anxiety. He mentions dementia, cardiovascular disease. Some of these were also mentioned in a report that, that you contributed to at, at Making Caring Common, which was published in, in the first year of the pandemic, listed some of the same costs of loneliness, but also included um, substance abuse and domestic abuse. So a, a wide range of, of costs here. How does the experience of loneliness lead to these problems? And do these problems simply vanish when loneliness is replaced by social connection? So, I, you know, I think this is another great question. The, there are things that are very hard to disentangle here. Loneliness and depression, for example, can brutally compound each other. You know, so if you're lonely, you, you're more likely to be depressed. And if you're depressed, you know, you often are critical or scanning for information that confirms your lack of worth, um, prone to withdraw in ways that make you more lonely. So it is very hard to disentangle causality with some of these problems. You can see strong associations, and it's very hard to determine causality. I mean, I do think that because loneliness is such a strong source of depression and anxiety, that depression and anxiety are usually the mechanism by which people's health is affected. They're domestic abuse, some of these other problems, it's usually because loneliness leads to a mental health problem of some kind that in turn leads to domestic violence or some other kind of problem. But loneliness in itself can be, a, you know, a very anguishing experience too. And, you know, to answer your question, I think social support matters a lot. It matters a lot in curing this acute experience of loneliness, which is, which is agonizing. And that people tend to be less depressed when they have meaningful connections and relationships. To follow up on this a little bit, I'm I'm curious whether in addition to emotional and physical health issues, whether loneliness can also present cognitive developmental issues, especially among young children for whom obviously intellectual development is really crucial. In other words, does loneliness produce sort of strictly educational problems in addition to these emotional and physical health issues? Well, you know, there's a there's an issue around parents being lonely. And again, there are a lot of lonely parents out there which can lead to depression. And depression in various ways can make it harder to parent. I mean, it can be, make it harder to engage in a lot of parenting activities, reading to your kids, being emotionally responsive to your kids, etc. But, you know, when kids are lonely, particularly in adolescence, that's an acutely painful experience for an adolescent to be lonely. And Partly because developmentally, you're so built to be interpersonal at, at that age, and you're built to evaluate yourself in large part by how 
you're assessed by your peers. And so if you feel unwanted by your peers, you can feel that especially acutely as a teenager. I don't know if there's data that links loneliness directly to cognitive issues, but again, loneliness often leads to anxiety, to depression, and you know other kinds of emotional challenges that can impair your cognitive capacity. And, you know, the, in terms of cognitive development, what I worry about more is people who are lonely and who are preoccupied with forming relationships, good relationships, or slip into a depression of, of some kind. They're likely to miss school. It's harder to read. It's harder to do homework. It's harder to do academic tasks of many kinds. They're less likely to be adventurous, to explore the world, to be creative. And and those things can all delay cognitive development. Turning to the pandemic, this report that uh, your organization issued found that 43% of young adults experienced an increase in loneliness since the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak. And this was published within the first year, so kind of measuring just the immediate impact of, of the first lockdowns. It also found that 61% of young people reported serious loneliness, as did 51% of mothers with young children. Those were two big vulnerable groups, but I'm curious, were there other groups that stood out to you that were particularly vulnerable to loneliness during the pandemic? I think those were the groups that stuck out. I think senior citizens were also a group I worried about a lot during the pandemic, for sure, partly because they were the most medically vulnerable and, you know, for good reason, were more prone to isolate themselves and often they were isolated already. And, you know, they're not in a lot of senior citizens don't have close contact with family members. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons to worry about senior citizens. But those were the primary groups that I think we were worried about. Um, I worry a lot about adolescents, too, and, and young adults during that period being deprived of developmental experiences because of the pandemic. You know, sort of once in a lifetime experiences that you have going to college, you have a certain kind of college experience that was you know, people were deprived of. I really felt bad about that. Parents, kids of all ages, too. You know, this has been really tough. You know, in general, the good news was that teens tend to get closer to their parents during the pandemic, especially their fathers, which was a great thing. But you can also, you know, imagine many situations where it created enormous stress for parents and and teens. You mentioned how senior citizens were particularly vulnerable to loneliness because they were particularly vulnerable to the virus and had to be physically distanced. Now that we're three years since the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, kind of reflecting back on on this pandemic experience, did we ever in this country manage to achieve a balance between the need to be physically distant with the need to remain socially connected? I feel like we got it wrong in the beginning months, but did we improve at all on that? Yeah, you know, I think this was the, in many ways, the central dilemma of the pandemic. I mean, there are other, there are other dilemmas as well, but we were so focused in my mind on keeping people medically safe in many communities that we neglected that they had to be. We also need to keep people socially connected, and if they're not socially connected. They're not only miserable, but they're vulnerable to a whole array of health problems, um, both immediately and over the long run. And, you know, I worry that this conversation was over-medicalized in a way, and that the people who 
were guiding our public health response to this should not have just have been doctors, but they should have been psychologists, educators, other people who think about social connection a lot and are able to try and work on both fronts where you're both really tackling a really dangerous disease and addressing people's isolation and that we didn't get that balance right. Lastly, I want to turn to solutions. Your report from the pandemic issued a a series of recommendations that I think were somewhat comparable to those found in Vivek Murthy's The Surgeon General Report. There's a lot of them, but I wanted to focus on two that were mentioned in, in your report from the pandemic. And I'm paraphrasing here. That's building social infrastructure and restoring commitments to one another, particularly for those who are who are vulnerable. What does this mean practically to build social infrastructure and restore commitments? And is government policy the best vehicle to achieve those goals? I think in terms of this kind of social infrastructure I'm talking about, government policy is the best way to achieve those goals. Although there are a lot of young people who are starting online communities, various kinds of communities for, for young people. I, you know, I hope that people in the private sector also are entrepreneurial about this. I mean, it's a big, it's a massive social problem that all of us can play a role in. You know, I think the what I mean by social infrastructure and the role of government is, you know, take libraries. You know, libraries aren't places where people are going to go to get books anymore at the same rate that they did, but they can become very vibrant um, hubs of community that bring people together as shared workspaces, bring together people for the arts, for civic causes, for advocacy, for interest groups of different kinds. You know, and, and there are more and more libraries that are trying to re-envision themselves and become those kind of community hubs, which I think is wonderful. Transportation and housing departments can really be focused and mindful about how their policies are either forcing people farther apart or bringing them closer together. You know, the United Kingdom and Japan, a couple other countries have dedicated loneliness ministers or people high up in government who are working on this. You know, a couple of those places, physicians hand out social prescriptions because loneliness is so connected to a variety of health problems. That's part of the infrastructure too, I think. You know, are there parks where parents can gather in every community is is a factor. Are there sports leagues that and do those sports leagues provide ways for a lot of people to connect? Um, anyway, there's, there's a ton of things that I think communities can do and government can do to create strong communities. Are you optimistic that we'll solve this problem of loneliness in some reasonable time span? I'm optimistic that we will, that things will get better. And as we get out of the pandemic, I think things will get better. But I do think that these things are so inter, interlocked in a way and that we live in a frightening time, you know, and we live in a time where we are uh, blasted, you know, we're all sort of awash in anxiety producing information um, and information that can make us feel sort of helpless and hopeless and disconnected. I think all those things can feed loneliness and loneliness can in turn feed those things. So I think there's, you know, all the concrete strategies I, I mentioned can make a difference. But I also think when people are feeling more generative, more hopeful, more expansive, they're more likely to reach out to other people. They're more likely to develop meaningful relationships and that 
you know, changing the mood of the country in a way, it, which is a lot, you know, I realize it doesn't happen overnight, is a piece of this as well. That's Rick Weisbord, faculty director at Making Caring Common at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Learn more by visiting mcc.gse.harvard.edu. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Support for WPFW comes from Wolf Trap, presenting Taj Mahal and Los Lobos, Thursday, June 1st, with North Mississippi All-Stars. Tickets are available now at wolftrap.org. And support also comes from you, the listener. Call 202-588-9739 to become a sustainer of this great radio station. Or visit us online at wpfwfm.org and click that Donate Now button. We're offering various gifts to those who do donate. In addition to the books on white evangelicalism and the FBI mentioned earlier in the show, which are still available for a donation of $100, WPFW is also offering a host of t-shirts and hats with the station logo so you can show off your love of jazz and justice. As always, we're also offering a variety of audio collections, featuring interviews of activists and artists on Pacifica Airwaves over the decades. Claim your gift by making a donation now. Call 202-588-9739 or visit us online at wpfw.org. Back to the show. Chicago named Avery R. Young the city's first poet laureate. Young will serve a two-year term and receive a $50,000 award for commissioning of new poems and creating public programs for youth and students. Last week, Young presented poetry during the inauguration of Chicago's mayor-elect, Brandon Johnson, a progressive Democrat and former Chicago public school teacher. I am Avery R. Young. I am a interdisciplinary artist from the west side of Chicago. Recently been deemed Chicago's inaugural poet laureate. I'm also a co-director over at the Floating Museum. Now, Avery, typically your poetry incorporates music. Why is that? Because I'm black. <laughs> I don't know what I'm telling you. I don't know what I'm telling you. I mean, it, I, I believe what is going on with me and my poetry and its connection to music is one, I don't remember anything without music being present. There's no early memory that I have that music is in present. So from conversations where the radio was playing in the background to going into to church and the minister, as the minister is speaking or preaching, 
there's music behind that. I don't know, especially in the context of poetry, where these lyrics are to these songs, they come with music. The language itself and our dialect of African-Americans is a very percussive in nature. We get that from the motherland. Let's take a listen now to Lil Lily. Come on now.
Avery, that was Little Lily. Now switching gears. Tell me about your experience performing at Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson's inauguration. What was that experience like writing the piece and how did you decide what to write? It was wild style. The team reached out with a set of points that they wanted the poem to cover. When I thought about it after reading what they were looking for, I had decided to send them two. They picked they the one for? up. They were looking for his major points were for his campaign, Chicago being a place where any child could thrive. When I read the, these particular themes, I was thinking more so about the word dream. So that kind of made me think about Langston Hughes' poem for Harlem. Whatever happens to a dream deferred. That last line of that particular poem is, or does it explode? Now, Avery, this poem is a little bit different. It does not incorporate music, but here's what you recited during your Chicago mayor-elect's inauguration. Any child doesn't have to go to school to ensure that they eat. For ain't this a metropolis? Once a milk and honey land to sharecroppers from the south. Ain't this metropolis a stir-fry of cultures? With lions on the stoop of a great art house? And ain't us all beautiful? Under a red sun sky and its mountains made of metal and windows. Or good old Dr. Watts him to pierce a sin-sick soul. And whereas any skeptic that does not believe in utopian vision escapes where justice is bliss and the imagination is the brain's gold mine, this city still be a space a dream can whisper into a child of the third fire's ear. This be a place where you can thrive. What issues are most important uh, for this new administration to tackle it? It was so funny. During his speech, one of the security guards that were near me was like, I just want you to fix the potholes. <laughs> and I thought it was funny. Here was this man being very eloquent about the soul of the city and the means in which the city is um, completely diverse with people from all ethnicities and identities and economic situations and that it needs to press its equity. And my understanding of the way in which a city works and what a city needs to do, the weight of it just can't fall upon the administration. Administration is only going to do so much. People have to be on board as well. It's nothing more than not yelling at somebody who cuts you off in traffic. There's an extension of humanity that that every Chicagoan has to extend to another Chicagoan. Oftentimes, we're looking for the change in the city to come from its officials and its administrators, but that change can't be achieved unless everybody else is on board. One of the things that I am looking forward to in this tenure of laureateship is to encourage more stories about different people, places, and things in Chicago so that the narrative is more so of the Chicago that I get to experience and not the 
a narrative that is heard around the world that this is kind of like an unsafe space and people are tripping and kids raid the streets of downtown on Saturday nights because they don't have nothing else to do. You're going to be able to build programs across Chicago in this role. What can we expect? I'm going to build and support and more so support because there are programs that are in Chicago. There are Kumbalinks, there's, there's Young Chicago Authors, there are programs in various theaters of the Good the Goodman Theater, Rebirth. The the Poetry Foundation as well? The Poetry Foundation, Rebirth Reborn, which is the organization that I work directly with youth literacy and poetry. There are various organizations that are doing the work with the youth that do require more support. So it's working with them. I've been working with youth and mentoring youth for over two decades in this city. The countless folk that, you know, that have been through a workshop and or worked with and just mentoring or just be champion. My mantra is you work with community. Now that I'm the Poet Laureate, I don't think I'm doing anything different (laughs) than I've been doing. But now as a Poet Laureate, people get to see it. Avery R. Young, thank you so much for joining me. This is Asia Backham for WPFW Radio. And that's our show for today. Rest in peace and power, Askia Muhammad. Thanks to our engineers, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. There's still time to donate to Monday Morning QB. Call 202-588-9739 or visit us online at wpfwfm.org and become a supporter of this great radio station. Please join us next Monday. Thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show and to WPFW Washington.